So we come now to the sixth church in the book of Revelation. I think there's one here. Do I open it? Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And you'll notice that it takes place in the city of Philadelphia, not Philadelphia, United States, but Philadelphia, which today is, would be in Turkey. And Philadelphia was well known for its earthquakes. What did we have recently? Huge earthquake in Turkey. So this is very historical as well. Uh, the city of Philadelphia... Today it has a different name, but back then it was Philadelphia. It was leveled by an earthquake in A.D. 17. So those fault lines are there, and um, that's the uh, church we focus on today, Philadelphia. Yeah, they're all gone now, right? Yeah, they're gone now. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, they're all part of Turkey. Yeah, but apparently this, this particular city was leveled. And, uh, but you're right, they're all part of, all part of Turkey, right? all part of Asia Minor. So, um, but apparently Philadelphia lasted the longest until 1400s. So that's a long time. So, but in connection with that, I would like to read um, Isaiah chapter 22. Um, because... Christ refers to it. That's why we read that. Isaiah chapter 22, verses 15 through 23. And you'll notice that they had stewards in the royal palace. And this is in the time of King Hezekiah. So King Hezekiah is a son of David, many generations later. And Shebna was a royal, stu- a royal steward in the house of Hezekiah, or the house of David, you could say. And God says he was not faithful. And he was going to toss them like a ball. Right? Cast them out. And replace them with a fellow by the name of Eliakim. And Eliakim would carry the, the key of David on his shoulder. And on that key, with that key, would open and no one would shut. And he would shut and no one would open. So that's the, the, really the background. Now Christ is saying, I am the fulfillment of this office. And... Uh, he reminds Philadelphia of that. Philadelphia was a very tiny church. And, he, and you'll notice that it was one of the very few, you know, uh, faithful churches where Christ only praises it. This one and Smyrna, the two of the seven. So we're going to read um, Isaiah 22, verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go, proceed to the steward, to Shebna, who was over the house, and say, What have you here? And whom have you here? That you have hewn a sepulchre here, as he who hews himself a sepulchre on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man. He will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. And there you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So Allah will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will pull you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe, 
Strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place. And he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. And now you see really the fulfillment of this. And uh, Christ declares himself to be the fulfillment of this. In Revelation chapter 3. The sixth church. It's called the faithful church. So we, Revelation chapter 3 beginning at verse 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews, and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's our focus this morning, Revelation uh, 3 verses 7 through 13. You can follow this passage along also in light of the outline that you have in the bulletin. Um, hope to look at it verse by verse. So yeah, we're dealing with the power of Christ's key. And um, I guess the question that comes this morning is, how do you measure success? When people talk about being successful. How do you measure that? Okay, we tend to think numbers. We tend to think of how much money we have and how big we are in the eyes of the world. But now I'll turn the question from another perspective. How does God measure success? Not in terms of how big we are, but are we faithful to Christ? That's success. Faithfulness to Christ and to his word. That's what we see here in Philadelphia. No doubt, sure, we desire numbers. We desire bigness. But to God, success is living or being faithful to him. Right? Living out of the faith that he has called us. In the midst of this very, you could say, influential city of Philadelphia, well known in the Roman Empire, was this very small, tiny church. As a matter of fact, you know what Jesus calls this church? He says, I know 
you have little strength. Now, strength can be translated in many different ways. It's small. It looked weak in the eyes of the world. Or it had little power. It probably consisted of people from the lower classes, maybe. But they were few in number. They didn't have a lot of money. They were not wealthy. They were, you could say, a no-name brand. A no-name in the city. They were seen as insignificant, you know, culturally. Uh, insignificant economically. The Lord, however, does not rebuke her for this. The Lord does not rebuke us for those things. As a matter of fact, how does Jesus see her? That's what matters the most in all of life. How does Jesus see us? How does Jesus see us as a church? That's really the, the big, important question. That's what really matters. And Jesus praises her for her faithfulness. She is blessed. This church is blessed among the churches because Jesus praises her for her faithfulness. You know, it's a fact that the, um, the powerful fruit of being justified by faith in Christ alone through faith alone, okay, one of those powerful fruits shows in a life of, of faithfulness. She knew. She knew Christ, and she knew the Christ who is faithful himself. The church stood together on God's word. It was not torn apart by divisions and factions. It was not misled by false teachings. They were able to detect false teachings. They were probably just nip it in the bud. And at the top, and in addition to that, they suffered terribly at the hands of those evil Jews. Those evil Jews, those wicked Jews, for their faith in Jesus Christ. Christ has a word to say about them as well. And on top of that, the empire, right, the Romans, the Roman Empire, they were also persecuting this small church. But in spite of it all, they were faithful to Jesus Christ. They held fast to the word of God. And you think about it, the Romans, the Jews, what was behind that opposition? Satan. Satan loves to close down the church. He would love nothing more than to shut down, especially this little church, because it stood firm. Satan hates those the most. And he, he wanted to battle. He wanted to empower those persecutors to shut it down. And now Christ, who's on the throne? Christ is, right? Think back to Revelation 1, the glorious ascended Christ. He encourages the small church, you remain faithful to me. Hold fast to what you have. Let no one take your crown. The powerful key to open and shut doors really is in Christ's hands. That belongs to him. He has the key of David. And you see, the power of Christ's key, really in this tiny church, in this tiny church, the power of Christ's key is in this church. It's being exercised. It's being seen in this church. And so what we see here, it's, again, it's all Christ's words here. He declares three things. It's also a word to us today, no doubt. Otherwise, he wouldn't include it in Scripture. But here it is. He declares, first of all, 
his position of power, Christ's own position of power in all of this. And then he says, I want you to see the proof of my power. You see that in verses 8 through 11. You see the proof of his power. And then verse 13, 12 and 13, the perfection of his power in this church. This church, which is nothing in the eyes of Philadelphia, is the apple of God's eye. Really, Christ loves this church. And so he addresses the pastor. That's the angel that he writes to. The angel is the pastor of this congregation. And Christ says in verse 7, These things says he who is holy. Christ is describing himself. I'm the holy one. I'm the true one. God also describes himself as the one who is holy and true. In Revelation 6 verse 10, Jesus is God. Christ is God. He says, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. You think about, just, just think for a moment what a key does. I think most of us own a key. Maybe not all children, but as adults we own a key. What is a key and what does a key do? A key is what? It's a symbol of authority, power. So, for example... Um, when you receive the key to your new home or to your new car, you alone have that, uh, that power to open that door, to shut the door. Who you may let into your home or you don't allow to come into your home. Okay, it symbolizes that authority to open a door and to shut the door. It's a very special term in scripture, key. key. Christ holds the key of whom? Of David. David. What's, they would have understood that. What is, what is Christ saying here? He holds the key of David. Well, why is it called the key of David? Remember what the Lord promised King David a long time ago in 2 Samuel 7? He promised David an, a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, and also one that would sit on his throne forever. And now Christ alludes to Isaiah twenty two twenty two, when Shebna, the chief steward, was deposed from David's royal house and replaced with another servant, Eliakim. Eliakim was given the key, okay, the authority from God himself to admit and exclude those who would come to the royal house of David. Okay? But Christ now says, all that is fulfilled in me. He's the Messiah. He fulfills that role. In the house of David. He has the key. He has the key to open and shut the door into God's house. His kingdom. You know what? We receive the kingdom. Right? You could say we receive eternal life. By grace alone. In Christ alone. And only when we believe in him alone. In Christ. He's the one who shuts the door. And opens the door. He shuts the door of the kingdom to all who do not repent and believe in him. But he opens the door to all who repent and believe in him. This is the key of eternal consequence. There's no more important key in all the world than the one who bears authority over heaven and earth, Christ himself. This is the key of eternal significance. The power of entrance into his kingdom, the key belongs to Jesus himself. 
No one can bring any argument against him. He does what is true. The standard of truth is in him. He is the holy one. He is the true one. He shuts. No one opens. He opens. No one shuts. You know, all sovereign authority and power is in his hands. Isn't it amazing that his power, his sovereign authority is such that he can open our hearts to receive him by faith? That's Christ and the use of his key. But he also hardens hearts so that they do not respond in faith. You notice this is what's going on in Philadelphia. Some Jews, some of the Jews who are part of the synagogue, they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happened? The Jews shut them out from the synagogue. They shunned them. They were not allowed to partake in their family matters, functions anymore. No more in the synagogue because they believed in Jesus. And now Jesus comes to the church. He encourages them, these new believers. He says, they shut you out? Don't you forget. They cannot shut you out of my royal house. They cannot shut you out of my kingdom. He shut them out. Christ would shut them out for not believing. That is the Jews. I hold the key of David. He's the only one. He holds it. He shuts. No one opens. He opens. No one shuts. You know, the leaders among the Jews in David's house were replaced because they no longer believed. They were no longer faithful. They were replaced by a faithful servant. And that's Christ himself. He declares himself as the Holy One. He declares himself as the True One. The standard of truth is in him. So, to Christ today is given that position of power. That's today. He's, he's given that position today. That, that, that position of power and authority by his Father, and that was given him through his death and resurrection, and at his ascension. Remember Matthew 28, 18. Right? All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Wow. He is true. In contrast to the lying leaders of the Jews. Even Jesus points it out very strongly in verse 9. He calls them a synagogue of what? Of Satan. Jesus himself says that. Who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. They're lying to you. How can we say that with many of the religions in our world today? They're lying. They don't belong to Christ. They belong to Satan. This is who holds the key. He's the one who's true. He's the one who's holy. And it's those who believe in Christ. They're the true Jews. Let's not talk about physical Jews. That's over. Right? In terms they no longer have a special place. The true Jews are the Jews who believe in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3 verse 7. Galatians 3 verse 9. They are the true children of Abraham through faith in Christ. Those are, the, those are called the true children of Abraham. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the offspring of Abraham. Yeah, the Bible says now in Hebrews 3 verse 6 that the Son of God is the, he's the Son 
over God's house. Matthew 16. Jesus says to his disciples, the new Israel, those are the new Jews, the spiritual Jews, the real Jews, that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he gives the the power of the keys to the church. This is amazing. So he gives the power of the keys now so that the church can exercise that key in the world. Jesus says to them, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Matthew 16, verse 18. And whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Wow, what's the key today? The gospel is the key. The gospel with all its warnings to those who don't believe. That's everyone in the world. But the gospel with all its promises to all who believe in Christ. Christ is the center. He's the only. He possesses the key. And that key he has entrusted to the church. The key, which is the gospel. We can say the preaching of the gospel. You want to see proof of his power? So many people go to the lesser things, like the miracles and the big shows and entertainments that you see in the different churches sometimes. <laughs> Christ doesn't go there. That's a lot of lies there. But he says, you want to see the proof of my power? Yes, this church is small. I know you're insignificant. You're weak in all appearances. But in God's sight, you are a great power. You possess a power that can never be defeated. You are blessed. I have given you a key. Wow. It's a power that outweighs any power and authority in the city, in the country. It's a power whereby Christ opens the door or shuts the door. This is a power of eternal consequence for every person who hears the message of the gospel. And so we see four proofs of his power. And you'll notice there's no manifestation of signs and wonders going on here. But the conversion is the sign and wonder in this congregation. But look at there's four of them though. What is the first, you could say, what is the first powerful sign and wonder in the congregation? What's the first one? You see that in verse 8. Perseverance in the gospel. That is a powerful proof of Christ himself. That's the, that's the proof of his power. Perseverance, or just continuing in the gospel. Jesus says, I know you work, I know your works. And he says, you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. That's where you see true conversion. Real conversion. Jesus says, you may be small, but you have not buckled. You have not buckled under the forces of persecution. You're not denying my name. And no doubt the temptation was really, really strong among the Jews who became believers. The temptation was really strong to deny because sometimes their families might say, hey, join us again and you can have all these things. But they held fast. They held fast to Christ's name. They were standing firm. Jesus said, you're standing firm in my word. You shun false teaching. You're small. You may be small, but you are faithful. This is one of the big proofs of Jesus' power over Satan, over sin, 
over death and hell. What is that big proof? His work of perseverance in them. His work of perseverance in the church. Jesus, you are persevering in the gospel and even under great, great pressure not to. Even under great, great pressure to deny my name. That is one of the signs, the miraculous signs and wonders of Christ in this church. Perseverance in the gospel. That's one. Second thing, second proof of his power. There's an open door for the gospel. They have a gospel. (laughs) They have a gospel that they can offer the world. The Jews no longer had it. They were one time God's covenant people, but they abandoned the gospel. They rejected Christ. And Christ, you could say, ditched them. Right? They were not repenting. He shut the door on them. But to you, I have set before you, I have given to you an open door for the gospel. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. You know what? The governor of Philadelphia could not shut it down. The Jewish authorities could not shut it down. The bylaw officers could not shut it down in this little town. Open door, that's really a common phrase that you see also throughout the book of Acts. And I think that's why we can interpret it this way. Think of Acts 14.27. There you see the word or phrase, open door. Paul and Barnabas, they were reporting to the church there all that God had done with them. And then he says that God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So you see Christ going before them, opening the door so that the gospel can make its path into the hearts of the Gentiles. You see it again, we can look at many, but we'll look at one more. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9. Paul speaks about how in Ephesus, a great and effective door had opened among you, even though there were many, many hostilities and many, many adversaries that you had to face. But there are no competition to Christ. Right? Christ barrels his way through, you could say, with the gospel. Right? He's the one who opens He sets before them an open door. He sets before us an open door in this community here. Now Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, I have opened a door for you that no one can shut. Really, you say? Ah, it's a piddly little church. People probably sneered at them. They didn't have really a lot of relevance, they thought, in the city. But Jesus says, no, wrong. Absolutely wrong. I have set before you an open door. This is is the proof of my power in you, at work in you. Go through it. Present the gospel. His word will always do its work. In whom he wills and when he pleases by his spirit. Always, all the time, he will work in the hearts of all his elect whom he has given to Christ. And they will most definitely come to faith. Christ is powerful enough to overcome their hostilities. <laughs> Paul is a proof of that. Right? A chosen vessel of Christ. Christ overcame. Now city, now church, the path is open. You continue to bear witness to me. I can use you because... You're aimable in my hands. 
No one can shut that door. No power. You, know, you think of the sovereign power of Christ here. And even his grace and his mercy and, and wanting the church to, to extend that mercy, the offer of mercy and grace to all the people in the city, even to the authorities in that city. That's two. You know the second or the third, uh, you could say, powerful sign and wonder in that church? Conversion to Christ through the gospel. Verse 9. Jesus said, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. Wow. This is one of the most hostile spots in the city. He says, Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Wow. Even they will all sit next to you in church. All, maybe not all, but those whom Christ has chosen. They will sit next to you in church and say, Wow. You were right all along. By the grace of God, they will say it. They will see it. Even more, they will bow before your feet and they're going to say, yeah, we see that God has loved you all along. They see the proof of Christ's power in their lives. Right? That's the, that's the, the sign and wonder among them. They see the love of Christ among them as a body. Jesus, you know, by the way. You know, sometimes you hear people saying, sometimes you hear people praying. I heard that someone had mentioned this past week. I thought that's a really good point. Some people pray and pray and pray that the devil may be bound again and again and again. But that's a wrong prayer. To pray that the devil may be bound? There's a lot of charismatics and Pentecostals who pray that. May the devil be bound. Why is it wrong to pray that? Because the devil is already bound. Christ has already bound the devil. Right? Think back to his ministry earlier on. He's already bound. He showed the reality of that during his earthly ministry. Remember when he plundered Satan's house? And what did he do? He bound the strong man. So why pray, Lord, please bind the devil? No, he is already bound. He's given us that strength, the authority. He's given us that key. The evidence of this binding is the fact that men and women are being delivered from the dominion of darkness as the gospel is preached to all nations. For that to happen, the devil needs to be bound already. Revelation 20, very clear, right? Christ has already bound Satan. For what purpose? That he might not deceive the nations. Wow. The binding has already occurred. And you know that knowledge of knowing that Satan is already bound, that Christ has already bound the strong man Satan, should give Christians great confidence and optimism as we faithfully teach and train our children. You know, we might get worried sometimes about all the things going on. But just remember, Christ is on the throne, Satan's already bound, and you can continue faithfully teaching and training your children in the way of Christ. Trust him. Use that key. That's a powerful key. That's what's going to make you successful. Successful. I'm not talking about money-wise. Certainly some might. We're not talking about that. But successful successful in the sense of um, you will train faithful warriors for Christ. Christ is the one who, who does that. You have the key in your hands 
A key that no one else in the city has, except the church of Jesus Christ. The key is in your hands. You have the opportunity to continue to bear witness, even by your life, just by being a Christian in the environment in which you live. Wow. We go on. Fourth. The fourth, you could say, powerful sign and wonder among them is they can believe that Christ will protect them in the future. Because the work that he has begun in us, he will also bring to completion. Right? You see that verses 10 and 11. Jesus gives a promise. He says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Now the hour of trial refers to the great tribulation. Hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Now we have to be really careful with this because some say, well, the great tribulation refers to just before Christ returns. I don't believe that. I think here it refers to the great tribulation that occurred at the time of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, 70 AD. You know, uh, Jesus is speaking to this church and they're about ready to face that. I'm coming quickly, he says. He's coming down to bring judgment on the Jerusalem temple and on, on Jerusalem itself. And that's going to cause catastrophic shaking throughout the world. And it did. And Christ says, you know what? I'm going to keep you from that hour of trial. What's he saying here? He's not promising to keep his people away from that trial. But he promises to keep them from falling away from him in that trial. That's more important. That's a powerful sign and wonder. He will keep them from falling away from him as they go through this trial. It's a great trial, and it was. If you read the history, historical accounts of 70 AD and the shock waves it sent throughout the, the whole world. And Jesus did come quickly, just as he said he did, in terms of bringing that destruction upon the temple in 70 AD. But he says, yeah. I'm going to keep you from falling away during, from me during this trial. But he says, but remember, I have a condition here. You just continue to hold fast what you have. Right? That no one may take your crown. Don't let anybody take that crown from you. You know, what he's saying here is don't allow people to steal the power that Christ has entrusted to you. Don't let them soften the gospel. Don't let them change the gospel. Don't let them steal that power from you, lest you become powerless. That's what happened to the synagogue. They left it. And Christ shut the door. Let no one take the gospel from you. Because if they take the gospel from you, they also take the crown from you. The crown and the gospel go together. The crown, you could say, is the crown of the gospel itself. A church that no longer holds on to the word of God has lost its power and is no longer, uh, you could say, um, a power in the, in the hands of Christ. Speaking of strength, right? Strength to protect there's this beautiful image given in Isaiah 43, verse 2. Very comforting words. And Jesus knew he had a heart for, the, for his people in Philadelphia, in the church there. 
But those words from Isaiah 43, verse 2 would come to mind. When you pass through the waters, he says, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. He's the one who keeps us from falling away from him in trials. It's not true that when you become a Christian, you don't have bad things happen anymore. Many hard things happen to Christians. But the beautiful power of Christ, the power of his key, is he keeps us from falling away from him in life and in death we belong to him. That leads us finally, briefly, to the perfection of his power. You know, we see more than the proof of his power. You also see the promising result. The promising result of his power to all who overcome by God's grace through faith in Christ. What is that promise? The perfection is seen in verse 12. The perfection is seen in that Christ will make the weak, the small, living pillars. Pillars, that's, 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 that's a symbol of strength and beauty. who make the weak and small living pillars. That's the one promise given in verse 12. And there's one more, a new name. No names and no name people become or receive the name of God or they receive God's name. See verse 12, those two things are mentioned, pillar and name. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. And I will write on him, and there's the name mentioned three times, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. So the name of God, the name of the city, and Christ's own name. Let's just go to that briefly. Pillars, right? Pillars are a symbol of strength, of endurance. Pillars, you could say, bear the, the weight of a building or bear the weight of the roof above it. And the image here is each believer being a... That's, we're talking about believers. Every believer. Not just leaders in the church. I know Peter was called a pillar. right? Leaders are sometimes called pillars. But every believer is called a pillar. A pillar in the temple of God. In God's um, worldwide temple, which is the new creation. His creation, the new creation, will be the worldwide temple of God. And every believer being that living pillar, a picture of strength, a picture of beauty, endowed to them by Christ himself, his gift. Perfection of his power at work in us. And he shall go out no more, it says there. Home at last. No more struggles. No more pain. No more trials. No more persecution. No more injustice. No more unfair things. No more suffering. He shall go out no more. Home at last. That's number one. Pillars. Living pillars. Every believer. And the second thing is, three names inscribed on you. 
I think from Revelation 18, I think it's, it's on the forehead, right? It talks about the name being ascribed on the forehead. You know, people sometimes want to make a name for themselves because they realize that that's all they have is just a name for themselves. And so sometimes they're inscribed things or sometimes their names on things, maybe on a, on a chair or on a, maybe on a pillar in a building so that their names can be remembered. But you know what? That's all they have. And that's why they want to be remembered in this way. But here Christ says, I will write on you. This is far better. It's a far better name because that's an eternal name. And it's not my name. It's his name. His name. That's perfection. Imagine the king of kings and lord of lords writing his name on you. And he says, not only the name of my God, not only the name of the city. Oh boy, that city, right? The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. A citizen of of a city that can be no more beautiful than, than that city. That fair city. And then, oh yeah, and the name of Christ. That is on all who do not deny his name. That's the promise. So yeah, brothers and sisters, by the power of God, by the strength of Christ, no doubt, we persevere. We persevere by faith in Christ, but in Christ alone. And that vision here in verse 12 should I mean, it, it can only excite us. We can't even imagine how beautiful that is. But think about it today. He's already put that name on you, or many of you, in your baptism. That name, you might not see it, but it's inscribed on the forehead. Your forehead, the forehead of your children. And now he says, you make use of my powerful key. You make use of my powerful key in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of the church, and the open door that is set before you. Just remember, it's in my hand. I entrust it to you, and you go and serve your king. To him be the glory, honor, and dominion forever. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Notice to the churches, not just to the church of Philadelphia, but all the churches who hear this. Oh, that's also us. Amen.